0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and you're listening to The Great America Show, and here we're all about truth, justice, and the American way every day. Welcome to the show, and it's great to have you with us as we take on the dark forces at work in our country and our enemies in foreign lands, mainly China, Russia, and Iran. We like to name names here, but there are others. And named or not, we will take them up in due course. Sometimes it takes more time than any of us would like or have to bear. The John Durham Special Counsel investigation is just such an instance. A.G. William Barr chose to appoint Durham Special Counsel to investigate the origins of the FBI investigation of Russian collusion and Russian interference in the 2016 election. Barr chose to appoint Durham in absolute secrecy on the 19th of October. That would be just five days after the country had watched as social media, big tech, and corporate news outlets had brought down a wall of disinformation and silence around the Hunter Biden laptop from hell and three days before the final presidential debate that year. The election was still two weeks away, but one new development unsuspected by the American people was already at work. A letter signed by 51 intel veterans, including five former CIA chiefs, was released to the media and to others, declaring their best judgment was that Hunter's laptop and its contents were Russian disinformation. They might as well have sworn on a stack of Bibles. That intel letter effectively killed the authentic evidence that the laptop was Hunter's, and its disgusting contents prove Biden family corruption, all true as we now know. Attorney General Barr says he didn't want to intervene in the election, which is why he made his appointment of John Durham to lead the special counsel investigation an absolute secret. But then, three days later, Joe Biden lied to the American people during the second and final presidential debate. And Attorney General Barr again chose not to tell America that the intel letter and the chiefs who had produced it were the real authors of election disinformation, nor tell them that former Vice President Joe Biden was lying through his teeth to the American people in that final debate. Barr's choices and decisions changed American history. And Joe Biden was elected president on November 3rd. Now, a year and a half later, John Durham's investigation is unfolding in federal court in Washington, D.C. Durham is prosecuting Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign attorney, Michael Sussman. He's facing one charge, lying to the FBI. And the evidence is compelling. But of course, there's more evidence to come. We hope much more. Our guest today is covering this massive and long-awaited case. Our guest is Joel Pollack, Breitbart News Senior Editor-at-Large. Joel is among the very best of American journalism. And Joel, it's great to have you back with us here on The Great America Show. This is obviously a hugely important case, representing really the inception of Russiagate, the Russia hoax, as President Trump appropriately and correctly called it.
0: Please give us your view, Joel. Well, this was the Russia collusion hoax that the Hillary Clinton campaign was working on over the course of the 2016 presidential election. And there was a particular offshoot of this hoax called the Alpha Bank hoax, where they tried to connect Trump to Russia via Alpha Bank. Now, there are a number of interesting things that have emerged from the trial of Michael Sussman who is accused of lying to the FBI about whether he was working for the Clinton campaign or merely providing information as a concerned citizen. And one of the more interesting things is that Sussman and the others planned for this revelation about Alpha Bank to be an October surprise. And indeed it was. Jake Sullivan, who is now the National Security Advisor, released a statement from the Hillary Clinton campaign that she tweeted and that everybody on the left shared, including our soon-to-be-resigning Ministry of Disinformation diva, Nina Jenkiewicz. She also (laughs) shared this little piece of disinformation. But he put out a statement saying that there was this Alpha Bank server that was connecting Trump Tower to the Russians somehow, and this was a major problem. So they unrolled this as a political hit job. And they did whatever they could to make the story credible, including saying that they'd gone to the FBI and so forth. Now, Durham was not allowed by the court to bring in the whole story of the Clinton campaign conspiracy. So he's only allowed to focus on the parts that relate to whether Sussman lied to the FBI or not. But we've learned a lot already about the inner workings of that campaign. There were some people who didn't know it was a hoax. They testified in court that they were convinced this was a legitimate national security issue. And I think some of them have to be believed, but keep in mind, they had been told for months already that Trump was colluding with Russia. They had been told by the media that when Trump joked about Russia looking for Hillary's missing 33,000 emails, that he was serious about somehow inviting Russian intervention. So they were led by the malevolent and the humorless down into this rabbit hole, and they participated in this hoax. The FBI knew almost immediately that it was a hoax. And yet the story continued and was fed to the media, and we're getting at least part of the story today in the Sussman trial. There are more witnesses to come, a whole roster of Democratic Party bigwigs and Hillary Clinton campaign officials, including Robbie Mook, who ran the campaign, and according to some accounts, was partly responsible for cooking up the claim that Russia stole the election. So we're going to get at least some of the picture of what happened in 2016 when Hillary Clinton and the Democrats in collusion with the mainstream media did their best to undermine a sitting president and to reverse the results of a democratic election.
1: And they laid a a foundation for this while he was still uh, campaigning for the job. Uh, He has the distinction of being persecuted by his political opponent, uh, both as a candidate, a president and post-presidency it's quite remarkable to see the effort that has been undertaken by the intelligence community, the Democratic Party elites, I'll put it that way, and Clinton elites, as well as the permanent bureaucracy, or as we affectionately refer to them here on this podcast as the deep state. To see Durham so patiently go through this is both, I'm sure, frustrating to everyone, I know it is to me, Uh, but to see the way in which he is now bringing much of it together, or at least appearing to do so, uh, it really gives me some hope that we're going to see revelation after revelation here, unless uh, Obama judges uh, do their job, as they've done in other uh, instances of uh, the pursuit of truth, and work against those revelations. What do you think?
0: Well, this is an Obama-appointed judge, and he has been okay so far, but he has narrowed the evidence to that which pertains directly to the charge. So he has not allowed this broader conspiracy to be described in full. So I guess if he has a bias, it was against revealing the full extent of the Clinton and Obama administration conspiracy to paint this Russia collusion picture. But I do think the judge has been fair. And he has allowed in a lot of other evidence that Durham's going to use. And probably the most important piece of evidence is a text message in which Michael Sussman, the Clinton campaign attorney who was on trial, said to the FBI agent that he was speaking to that he was only giving this information about Alpha Bank as a concerned citizen and was very explicit about not working on anyone's behalf. The testimony thus far has gone deeply into the question of when billable hours were charged and who was paying for them and so forth. But it does look pretty clear that Sussman was billing the Clinton campaign for hours during which he was working on opposition research, which was probably related to this outreach to the FBI. So this is looking pretty bad for the defense. And they seem to think that it's ludicrous to believe that Michael Sussman would throw away his his whole career. With a lie to the FBI. Why would he do that? That was in the opening statement to the jury. They are also trying to say that the lie was immaterial and so forth. But I don't think they're going to do very well here. Meanwhile, by going to trial, they have given Durham an opportunity to bring all of this other stuff into the light. And the media have ignored the origins of the Russia collusion hoax. In fact, A few years ago, when the inspector general of the Department of Justice came out with his review of the Russia collusion hoax and the phony FISA warrants lying to the FISA court and so forth, he came out and said, well, mistakes were made, but he doesn't think there was a political motive at the origins Mm -hmm. of all this. And then remember, Attorney General Bill Barr said, whoa, 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 I absolutely think there was a political motive at the start of all this. And he made it clear that John Durham believed there was a political motive at the start of all of this. And now we see the political motives. This was cooked up by the Clinton campaign in an attempt to create an October surprise in 2016. Even though they were way ahead in the polls, they wanted to create an October surprise to remove any chance that Donald Trump could win. And all of this blew up in their faces when the director at the FBI at the time, James Comey, apparently acting on a false belief that Russia had intercepted some Clinton communications, went out there and said they were going to reopen the investigation. This is in late October 2016. I think it was October 28. They were going to go reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails because of the Anthony Weiner laptop that was found in an investigation for which he later went to jail for having inappropriate sexual conversations with a minor online. So it all comes back to Andrew Breitbart and Weinergate 10 years before somehow but but you know this this was the entire as you put it deep state colluding with the media colluding with the democratic party to create this insurance policy to use the words of peter stroke to make sure that trump would not become president or that if he did become president he could be removed through investigation and impeachment
1: and there you have certainly an october surprise in the making. It didn't, as you say, work out exactly as they intended, as these things often don't. What is interesting when you raise the, uh, the Breitbart connection to Wienergate uh, is whatever happened to that laptop, uh, all of its sorted contents, and why has there been so little inquiry, in your judgment, uh, about it from the ever-so-curious, always, and ready to protect the American democracy, uh, corporate uh, media outlets.
0: Well, that laptop was apparently reviewed by the FBI, but they did it very quickly, absurdly quickly. They wanted to get it done before the November election, November Mm -hmm. 8th, 2016. And they said they went through all the emails. There was nothing new. They hadn't known about this cache of emails on an unsecured hard drive, some of which may have had classified markings. But they said, oh, we've seen all these emails before. There's nothing new here. And I'm not sure whether that was the right conclusion, but that's what they told the public. They went through all of it. But what it did was it reminded the public, and I think particularly Republican voters who had been wavering on whether or not to trust Donald Trump, it reminded the public that there was a cloud of suspicion hanging over Hillary Clinton. Now, what was it? It wasn't just that she had some technicality, that she violated the Espionage Act by mistake or whatever, because she had this private email server at home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lots of government officials, fortunately or unfortunately, use private emails for various reasons, even while they're in government service, they probably shouldn't do that. But it's been done by Republican and Democratic administrations. And, you know, it looks a little bit like a misdemeanor, no harm, no foul, not the kind of foul that sends you to the free throw throw line, you know, in, in basketball. But the reason she had the private server, and this is where we really get into the problem with Hillary Clinton as a candidate. The reason she had the private server was there was evidence from my colleague, Peter Schweitzer and his research evidence that she was using her position as secretary of state to enrich herself and her family and her foundation, because the donations to the Clinton foundation went way up while she was secretary of state, Bill Clinton going around the world, getting half a million dollars a speech, that sort of thing. And it was an influence peddling operation that they had to keep off the government servers so it couldn't be FOIA. In other words, it couldn't be uh, produced to the public on demand. And they destroyed all the cell phones and they lost all the emails. So this was a way for her to control the information that many people believe, including myself, documented this influence peddling that was going on. And we see that now with the Biden administration. Joe Biden and Hunter Biden were in business together. Joe Biden used his position as vice president to enrich his son. When he was out of office, he and his son went into business together, and this relationship continued. It's all documented there on Hunter Biden's laptop, and much like Hillary Clinton's private email server, they had to make sure nobody saw it. So when it was discovered accidentally, the media and big tech and the Biden campaign had to pretend it was all Russian disinformation. They had to pretend it was a lie, and it wasn't a lie. It was a repeat of what happened with Hillary Clinton. There was basically a business grafted onto senior levels of the United States executive. And we have the same problem in the Biden administration. And now anytime Biden does something or doesn't do something on let's say China or even on Ukraine and Russia where Hunter Biden had some dealings, we don't know if he's acting on his own behalf or the country's behalf. I mean, there are serious criticisms out there saying, why is Joe Biden sending so much money to Ukraine when there's a clear conflict of interest that his son was serving on this prominent energy board in Ukraine, and so on and so forth. Now, I think there are independent reasons for and against sending that money overseas. But people are asking the question, is this really an act on behalf of the country or on behalf of his son, his, his family, and so forth? And especially with China, where we're not really even clear yet whether Hunter Biden has completely unwound his Chinese investments, that's a really important question. How much is Biden doing for the country and how much is he doing for the Biden family?
1: It's uh, we're we're talking about we haven't even gotten into the bio labs, uh, the uh, research laboratories uh, and all of the exploratory talks. We're told that that's all they were. Exploratory talks by Hunter Biden and his erstwhile uh, professional associates. Uh, Meanwhile, we know they're there. Uh, We had it uh, validated. By Victoria Newland, no, no less, and and again, not even artfully did the the left wing media uh, just suddenly recede uh, from any interest in the story, and it's sort of gone on by. It's a very important story, it seems to me, but you can't convince CNN, uh, the New York Times, or the Washington Post of that, can you?
0: Well, you know, once in a while, they do tell the truth. And one of the more interesting revelations in this whole saga did come from the Washington Post. They were the ones who broke the story that this fellow Mark Elias was the lawyer responsible for arranging the hiring of Fusion GPS, the opposition research firm firm, to produce the phony Russia dossier, which led to this entire collusion story. And he hired Fusion on behalf of the Clinton campaign. And on behalf of the Democratic National Committee. He laundered that money essentially through his law firm at the time, Perkins Coey. And the FEC recently fined Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee for failing to disclose that expenditure properly. They just disguised it as legal expenses, but it was spent on Fusion GPS producing this fraudulent document. So that actually came up from the Washington Post. Once in a while, they do get to the heart of this. But What's interesting to me is to watch these White House briefings. You know, we had Jake Sullivan at the briefing this week, and he's appeared many times before. And mostly what he speaks about these days is Russia. And yet Jake Sullivan was one of the authors of the Russia collusion conspiracy theory. How are we to take anything he says seriously about Russia when he lied to the media? He lied to the public about the Russia collusion hoax. And he lied to Congress. He was investigated or he he testified in front of the House Intelligence Committee in 2017 as part of their investigation. And he said falsely that Michael Flynn was colluding with the Russians and that Donald Trump had been colluding with the Russians. Now, he can't be prosecuted for perjury because he was giving his opinion to Representative Adam Schiff. But still, he said something false to Congress about this. He lied to everybody. Now, I accept that the administration's policy of isolating Russia might be in the right direction. I happen to agree that we should support Ukraine against Russia in general. But how can we trust anything this particular individual is telling us about this because he has lied repeatedly about supposed collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And that's important because those lies created mistrust and blocked relations between the U.S. and Russia In a way that might have led to the present crisis, we are not. If you'll notice, we're not even participating in any diplomacy, at least openly, with Russia. We're leaving that up to other people. Biden, who said diplomacy is back, namely China, right? But you know, we're leaving it to the Ukrainians themselves, or, or the Israelis, or the Turks, or the Chinese, or whoever. And and Biden's big thing was diplomacy is back, but he's not doing any diplomacy. And maybe he can't do diplomacy with Russia because he has spent the last several years, along with the rest of his party, demonizing Russia for partisan domestic political reasons, when if they had not told this lie, if they had not created this hoax, we could actually have the possibility of some sort of diplomatic settlement of this thing that wouldn't involve billions and billions of dollars that would bring this war to a close without costing thousands more lives. I mean, I'm a very hawkish person in terms of my foreign policy orientation. I don't see a way, even with Ukraine holding out as bravely as they have done, I don't see a way to bring this to a conclusion without some kind of agreement because you're dealing with a nuclear power controlled by an unpredictable individual. I don't think that's a situation in which you can really go on the offensive with any great degree of confidence.
1: This president has been in office since January, uh, almost a year and a half ago. And no one's taking into account what the policies were of this administration in the months, uh, the year leading up to this uh, invasion of Ukraine. I am not so easily persuaded that we need to be spending uh, in excess of what will be over $50 billion on military equipment and whatever other aid is provided for in the the legislation. Uh, But I'm also deeply troubled by uh, Zelensky saying to the president's emissaries, do not, do not return here with empty hands. It wasn't a request. It was a demand. And given the checkered history of both men, uh, it's that's a that's deeply troubling. And again, I see very few following up on that, and comparing this aid of the United States and the positioning of our troops in Poland, uh, the uh, you know on the eastern flank, and the suggestion that we're going to send more troops to Somalia. This is a more than just a reversal of Trump doctrine.
0: Yeah. Well, we really don't know why the administration is pursuing the course that they are. There seems to be no reason. And they're not explaining what their goals are in Ukraine. So they're going to Congress and asking for $40 billion and Congress is giving it to them, it looks like. Yeah. But they're not saying what the strategy is. And, and really, whenever you're going to spend that kind of money, I mean, if this were a business, the board would say to the CEO, well, what are the other alternatives to spending this money? I mean, Can you do the same thing? Can you get to the same outcome more cheaply? What's the cost going to be if we sit down at the table with the Russians and say, all right, let's negotiate an end to this border dispute, and you end the war, and Ukraine makes some concessions, and then we call it a day, and then we don't have to spend $40 billion and continue the war that's displaced so many millions of people and caused such trouble to the rest of the world? and?" You know, there really is a, a risk here of the deployment of technical nuclear weapons by the Russians. They've, they've said as much, essentially, and we have to be wary of that. You know, yeah. this is not just science fiction. This is not out of a comic book, graphic novel or something. I mean, This is the real world. And the Biden people seem to think that they've got the upper hand. But you know, the Trump card, no pun intended, is, is really still held by Putin in, in the form of nuclear Uh, Retaliation, and he may not attack the U.S. homeland. He may not attack a NATO member, but what would he do? What would we do if he attacked Ukraine? I mean, we're not treaty-bound to defend Ukraine, and would we really want to risk a more global nuclear confrontation by retaliating? Mm. So, so I don't think that the Biden people have thought this through. Oh, I'm,
1: I'm afraid that this is one of the few things they may have thought through, because they have been prodding uh, Putin. Uh, from the time Biden got in office, and the conversations began with Zelensky talking about bringing him into NATO, expanding NATO. Uh, and this went on, it, uh, and the talks uh, got greater energy as we approached the fall uh, of 2021. 20, uh, and, and it makes no sense because that is a red line. It has always been a red line. For Vladimir Putin, the expansion, the military expansion of the NATO defensive alliance is a an absolute no, and it will be met with a response. Uh, he's said as much. He's reiterated as much. He is accepting Sweden and Finland so long as there is no military expansion of NATO power in those two countries. And, and that's, you know, those are two of the better uh, run uh, countries uh, in, in the uh, in, in Europe, uh, they're small, but they're they're mighty. Uh, it's so it's it's troubling to me, and I think to many others, that Biden. Sometimes you have to take what something is at face value, and this at face value looks like an effort by the Biden administration to provoke the results uh, that we witnessed on February twenty fourth. Your thoughts?
0: Well. I think there's also domestic politics involved here. I think that for Biden and the Democrats and much of the foreign policy establishment, they see an opportunity to punish Vladimir Putin for what they still view as the stolen election of 2016. And there's a bit of vengeance at work, I think psychologically, at least. I don't know if that's guiding their foreign policy decisions, but it does seem to be the sentiment that they share. I don't know that they want to provoke Russia into a war, but you have to consider that possibility that they want to provoke Russia to act so that they have a pretext for acting in an even more overtly offensive manner. Because something like a no-fly zone, for example, would involve having to attack Russian assets on the ground in Belarus, which is an ally of Russia and possibly within Russia itself. So they don't want to do that and risk provoking a much larger confrontation unless they can say, well, we were attacked first. So I think they're daring Putin to do something Look, maybe they also just feel that there's a win to be had here in a a broader strategic sense. Maybe they're enticed by the idea of removing a major geopolitical rival or at least a geopolitical problem from the map. And then they can pivot to China and focus on China. I mean, that's probably the most charitable reading of it. But I also think that they're not being clear with the public. When you're asking the American people to make sacrifices on the order of $40 billion, which is far more than we spend securing our southern border. Okay, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but how do you say we don't have money for a border wall and and, and it's a waste of money to build a wall on the border well, when you're sending many times that amount to defend someone else's border? It doesn't make any sense to me.
1: No, but the Biden administration, again, in one of its few instances of being forthright, has said the reason. They intend to flood this country with illegal immigrants across that southern border. That's the reason they do not have a wall. They are, are pulled back, the Border Patrol, and that they have suspended effectively the operations of immigration and custom enforcement. Uh, it's, uh, again, it's straightforward. And as, well, as you know, this, this administration isn't straightforward about many things. It's been absolutely forthright on those, on those
0: matters. Let's look at something that's a very interesting contrast. Vladimir Putin, before the war began, used migrant flows across the borders of Eastern Europe to try to disrupt the societies and the governments of his rivals in that region. He was deliberately funneling migrants into Europe across the Eastern European frontier. And we spoke out against that. Now, how do we speak out against Putin using migration essentially to invade his neighbors and disrupt their lives, when we won't stop the caravans and the millions of people who are pouring across our borders, shepherded by the cartels, why are we so sensitive to Putin sending migrants across the border, but we are not doing anything about the migrants coming into our country? And part of it is is class, if I can use a Marxist term, because the people making these policies live very far away From the communities that are impacted by the rapid influx of migrants. If you live in a nice apartment in Northwest Washington, DC, a nice condo or whatever, maybe you don't have to deal with this. But if you live in a border county in Texas, you do. The other possibility is just they think that this is part of a broader political strategy. And that's very controversial to say right now. And there's a sort of white supremacist, racist version of this, which I think is abhorrent and discredited and not to be taken seriously. But Democrats do resist any effort to distinguish between legal immigrants on the one hand and illegal aliens on the other. When the Trump administration tried to count uh, residents and to exclude those who were illegally in the country in the census, Democrats went to court over that. They did not want the illegal population to be excluded from the census count because they wanted to make sure they had enough congressional seats in the blue states where there are large numbers of illegal residents such as California and so,
1: through the good you know, offices of the of the blue judges uh, that they put uh, put the case in front of they won uh, and without any basis for appeal uh, it, it it's just the same uh, stratagem uh, that you would expect and it goes on their simple answers are straightforward the and and I, I don't understand why people have any doubt about the purpose of the, of the left, uh, the purpose of the Democrat Party. Uh, and, and the real reason that Trump drove, in, in my judgment, uh, drove, <laughs> drove the, the left nuts is because he was not a racist. He was absolutely securing the border. And he was working to find ways to do it, irrespective of the rhetoric, uh, the rationale or rationalizations of the left. Uh, it, it drove them utterly nuts. You don't yeah. agree?
0: No, you know, this, is, this is something we see in our politics that they're manipulating the immigration issue. You know, When John McCain ran for president back in 2007, 2008, his chief of staff, Mark Salter, wrote a piece in Real Clear Politics In which he pointed out that Barack Obama, who was then the likely Democratic nominee for president, Barack Obama had torpedoed on several occasions bipartisan efforts to create a comprehensive immigration reform. So when it when it looked like it was going to happen and the Bush administration supported it and the Democrats in Congress supported it, Barack Obama found a reason, even though he was supposed to be working on this deal, he found a reason to undermine it. And the reasons kept changing. The unions didn't want it or so forth. But essentially, the reason was always the same, the underlying reason, which is that Obama preferred to have immigration as an election issue rather than solving the problem. Democrats don't want to solve the problem. If if they wanted to solve the problem, it could have been done a long time ago. And whenever the prospect of finding a bipartisan path arose, even under the Trump administration, Democrats rejected it. Remember, in his second State of the Union, Uh, it was actually technically his first state of the union, but his second address to Congress, Trump outlined the four pillars of immigration reform and Democrats immediately rejected those pillars because they did not want anything that would prevent future chain migration. That was the big sticking point. Trump wanted immigration based on skills. Democrats want to continue the family based chain migration system, which has been so abused and has allowed so many people to come in in such an uncontrolled way. So, it was a non-starter for Democrats, but that's what the country wants. I mean, the country wants a solution to this problem. And Democrats, well, look, they're going to pay a price in November, but they're going to try to get as many people across the border before November. Exactly as they can. Right.
1: You know, And this business about Title 42. Uh, the fact of the matter is, with or without Title 42, the Biden administration will figure out a way to bring in the estimated seven to eight million more illegal immigrants over the course of the next year. Uh, it's that someone has come up with a number. Uh, that is a critical mass, if you will. Uh, and I truly believe that. Uh, to what purpose? Uh, you know, we have a lot of theories on that, but none of them are in the interest of the United States.
0: Well, I, I agree with you there. And, and Democrats have yet to explain why it is that they won't stop the influx over the border. Now, there are possible reasons, but these are all just conjectural. One is the political motive you and I have discussed. Another is just sentiment they want to be nice they don't like enforcing laws in any context so maybe they don't want to do the hard work the sometimes difficult work of enforcing immigration law and they just leave us out there to speculate because they don't explain it to the public why are you allowing this to happen all they can do is say well donald trump's policy was inhumane or whatever that means but it's not humane or compassionate to allow the cartels to smuggle these people to abuse these people to leave them abandoned in rivers or in deserts to die that's not compassionate what's compassionate is an orderly immigration system and democrats don't want that they but they don't explain that and and i think look i do think there are going to be political consequences but there are also societal consequences because they're telling us that if you even challenge that policy then you're a racist who supports yeah. mass murder and so forth right. and you know it's it's just toxic and
1: and that the uh, the accusation has become, I think, significantly less effective over time. It's a bit diluted. Uh, and people have the experience of knowing what is racism and what is not. And this is this Democrat Party is now so obvious, obviously obviously a, a party of uh, division and racial uh, identity uh, as its, uh, co- at its core that I, I personally believe that the Democrat Party will suffer, as you said in, in November for a lot of reasons, but certainly large among them, is, is this now, I think, obvious to most um, judgment of the party as being really a, a, a retrograde party. It, it styles itself as uh, progressive. It's, it's retrograde, uh, and it's, it's disgusting, uh, and it's, it's got all sorts of these Marxist elements, whether we're talking about ESGCRT, uh, eid you know it's and corporate america is in league with it and i think again they're on the wrong side of history uh, they are working between parents and their children uh, they are uh, trying to divide by race uh, it's it's really a the democratic party is in shambles and they they just don't know it
0: Yeah, they really are. And they don't have much to stand on. So you're going to hear a lot of hysteria. And look, I'm surprised and somewhat impressed by how organized the hysteria is. I mean, they're really out there getting their message out, trying to scare as many people as possible. I just don't know that the average American voter is listening anymore. I think people are looking at the gas price. People are worried about their household budgets. People are looking at their stock market portfolios tanking, their 401ks. Remember, Trump used to be mocked for saying the stock market was going to crash. And then Biden took office and it kept going up for a while. Well, now the headlines are all about the stock market crashing and people are looking at their E-Trade accounts and their 401ks and they're starting to panic. And that's a result of inflation. But the inflation is also a result of the Biden administration's policy of spending as much money as possible. So I think that those issues are going to dominate. But we'll have to see. It is not going to be a walk for Republicans. It's going to be quite a battle.
1: Oh, I, I hope it will be, because the better the battle, the more facts will be out in front of the American people. I hope, it's as, I hope this is as aggressive a political fight as we've had uh, in a merry moon, because I truly believe that in the arena, truth is found in this uh, great republic, uh, and what I hate is when people try to stifle truth uh, and pervert it, uh, which is <laughs> a, a, a hobby for most of the left in this country. Uh, Joel, I want to say, first of all, thank you. I always enjoy talking with you. Uh, and I, I, if we're not ending on too, too sweet a note, I think I should point out one thing in case everyone's feeling jolly about the Republican Party. Remember, 40 Republican senators sent a letter to Biden asking for that no-fly zone that was a sure mark for war with Russia. 40 Republican senators. Don't you find that stunning, Joel? Joel?
0: I just find it stunning that nobody thinks about the consequences and, and and nobody asks the questions. And again, nobody asks, is this the most cost effective way of pursuing the same goal? What is the goal? Is your goal to get rid of Putin like B- Biden let slip in Warsaw? Is your goal to reach peace? I mean, what is the goal here and 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 why are we throwing money at this without asking what the goal is? I mean, that I look, I am all for supporting Ukraine. I think Russia ought to be condemned for its aggression and all of that. And I would not like to see Ukraine lose this war. But I also think that the way we should proceed is diplomacy. That's what Biden ran on. He ran on diplomacy. And instead of that, he's just sending more weapons overseas. And if he's going to cast that as our Approach well. I want to know what he thinks the goal is. I mean, if, if if weapons are the means, what are the ends? And he hasn't told us.
1: Well, and I'm not sure that if he knew, he would fully comprehend sufficiently to, uh, to, to convey that meaning. Joel, we always give our guests the last word. Uh, your concluding thoughts, if you will.
0: Well, I think the world is in a tough spot at the moment. We're we're all going to go through a pretty rough patch, and it's not going to be solved after November. I think. Simply having control of Congress, if Republicans manage to win, is not going to be enough. But I do think we should welcome an open contest in the 2024 primary. I do think President Trump is going to run. I think there may be other candidates who run. But I think what we're learning through these early primaries so far in the midterm elections is that more voices don't actually hurt the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party. More voices are good for the process. And I think that we should welcome. The contest and debate that's coming, but it becomes more and more urgent with every day. So we all have to take it more seriously because this is really turning out to be a, a crucial moment. Can we save our country from going over the cliff? I was mocked when I predicted that Joe Biden would be the most left wing president in American history, and you know here we are. So this is really important.
1: And and right, you are. It's it's good to talk so long with a fellow who is right so often, Joel Pollack. <laughs> Breitbart, editor-at-large, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. God bless. Joel Pollack, great American. Coming up this week, I'll be sitting down with President Donald J. Trump. That's Wednesday the 25th. I'll be talking with President Trump. I'm really looking forward to that, as you might guess. And with us Tuesday, Steve Bannon will be here. Our good friend will be with us to talk about how much trouble this country is in. We'll have Steve's view on everything from runaway inflation to this disastrous administration. Joining us here tomorrow will be General Michael Flynn. General Flynn is preparing lawsuits against those who've wronged him and this country, who have inflicted great pain on the general and his family, and for whom it appears there will now be an accounting. That's General Michael Flynn here tomorrow. Please be with us. Till then, God bless you, and God bless America.